0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading back to Cairo, where archaeologist Dr. Zumer has discovered the mummy Claris, guardian of the tomb of Princess Ara, whose sarcophagus he believes contains a medallion indicating the location of the princess's hidden treasure. Eager to get a piece of the action, two American adventurers, Abbott and Costello, seek out Dr. Zumer, only to discover that he's been killed and the mummy stolen. However, they do find the medallion, and it's not long before they are pursued by a mysterious woman and a high priest, each with their own plans for that secret treasure. With a reanimated mummy on the loose and assassins around every corner, can our heroes hope to make it out of Cairo alive? Grab your pith helmet and join us as we discuss Abbott and Costello meet the mummy.
1: To a new world.
0: Gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll
1: show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> You're
0: insane.
1: I tell you, I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world.
0: He went for a little walk, he his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic monster series. Today we're talking about the final Abbott and Costello monster flick, 1955's Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host and our resident snake charmer, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike?
1: You can often catch me just sitting in a giant basket waiting for the music to start. How's it
0: going, Dan? We are almost at the end, Mike, and I gotta say, it kind of started.
1: To feel like it, yeah, I feel you, man. This is the Abbott and Costello curtain call tonight.
0: Yeah, so this is not only the final film where they encounter a monster, but it's also their 28th and final film ever with Universal International. So it's not just the last movie we're going to talk about. It's the last movie they did with Universal. Crazy. Yeah. By 1956, 16 years after their debut in One Night in the Tropics, the once shit-hot comedy duo were older, dealing with health complications, and their popularity was waning. And after DECA acquired full control of Universal in 1952, B-movies were pretty much being phased out. So I can only imagine people really didn't give much of a shit about Abbott and Costello meet the mummy.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's pretty clear that the budget was very, very low on this one and the stars kind of seem checked out by now. But you know, despite all that, gotta admit, I do still kind of enjoy this one. The mummy suit looks like a bad pair of pajamas and a lot of the gags <laughs> are stale. Yep. I mean, one of them is a thinly veiled rewrite of the old Who's On First routine. I just find it hard not to crack a smile when watching any Abbott and Costello movie. Their chemistry is undeniable, even in the worst of times. But, you know, I still have to acknowledge that this might be, at least in my opinion, the laziest effort that we have seen to date. So I got to ask Mike, what did you think of Abbott and Costello meet the mummy?
1: You know, all in all, I think it's actually better than the Invisible Man one, right? At least this sticks to the plan, like yes. the premise and the plot and all that. But you know, then the hardest thing was getting all into the new monster in the last two episodes with the creature from the Black Lagoon and getting on such a high with those movies and then having to kind of, you know, pump the brakes for Abbott and Costello again. I almost wish that this came out before... For those movies, and we could just have been done with it all in one nice fail swoop. And unfortunately, that's not where we are. Um, This is the first time I'm ever seeing this. It is not my favorite. I'll just say that. I'm going to stick to the creed of the show, right? Like, I mean, if you can't say anything nice, don't say it at all. Like, I'm going to be on my best behavior, but like, I gotta be honest, like, I just, I wasn't really feeling Abbott and Costello anymore. I felt like we were done with them, and it just felt like we were taking a step back. One kind of saving grace in the back of my mind this whole time, because I'm I'm kind of weird is that this movie comes out in 1955 so I'm like oh George McFly probably went and saw this movie it takes place during Back to the Future I wouldn't be surprised if Doc Brown was at the cinema too yeah ultimately it just felt stale it just felt like we've been here before why are we going back and you know it's not without its charm I always love Abbott and Costello I always love a good mummy but they didn't stick to any of this previous lore It's it all feels like heavy parody and for what it is it's fine it, it's definitely not the worst worst movie I don't think that we've seen so far. It's not the worst Abbott and Costello movie either, but it's down there. It's among them.
0: It might be the worst Abbott and Costello movie that I have seen personally. I I can't deny that it's just not very good. I find myself defending it a little bit though. Like we do on the show, we always try to find the good and stuff and I do really get a lot of enjoyment out of Abbott and Costello. So maybe I'm giving it more credit than it deserves. There are things in other Abbott and Costello movies like in The Invisible Man, maybe that was overall a, a better movie, but it does some things that I really don't understand and I almost find a little bit unforgivable like that final sequence where costello is invisible and then he becomes visible again and for some reason his feet are backwards you know there's stuff in those movies that make absolutely no sense here it's sort of a by the numbers mummy abbott and costello movie i think some people would dock points for that that it's not inventive at all really i guess it depends on what you're looking for this one does scratch that itch to some degree and i still managed to find stuff to enjoy i mean i made notes about this one about like stuff i, I did really like i don't know it might be the worst abbott and costello movie Movie I've seen I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready to rank them yet
1: the one thing like you have to see this movie for and we'll talk about is the dancing undeniable reasons to actually see this movie and sit down and watch it is like there's three dance sequences um, the first one is some of the most incredible stuff uh, not just dancing but some of the most incredible visuals I've seen in a movie in a very long time there was something very similar to this recently in Viva Las Vegas we watched but I mean nothing quite like this caliber with the dancing and you know i do love their routine don't get me wrong it just feels like it goes on a bit too long and it's geared towards that younger audience you know i always like it more like we had said you know when abbott and costella are in a universal monster movie and this is one of the other times where it's an Abbott and Costello movie with some monsters in it. You know, I think it leans more into that. It feels way more like a cartoon. Um, it's 1955, so I don't see them wanting to go dark or too scary at all and just keep it a straight up by the numbers comedy. Again, nothing wrong with that. I was actually hoping to come back and be like, oh, El- Abbott and Costello. I almost said Elvis Costello. <laughs> was, oh, Abbott and Costello, like so good to see them again. Like I missed you guys and all this. But unfortunately, I I was more along the lines of like, oh, hey, guys, like, I thought you guys left. But here you are.
0: I will say watching these in chronological order, I kind of feel similarly to you. It does feel like this was left over. And so I'm going to say right now, before we really get into it, that I I couldn't find any information on this one. I I was looking around and I couldn't find anything credible. And so I really just have the credits. So a lot of what I have to say about the production here is going to be speculation. And it seems to me, you know, once DECA acquired full control of Universal, they were just, okay, you've got these movies already in pre-production let's get them done we'll finish them we'll put them out and then after they're done that's it we're moving on we're doing other stuff
1: yeah yeah fill, fill out all the contracts right
0: yeah this very much felt like a contract fulfillment it felt like this was still in the hopper at universal and they were just like okay we've invested time and money into this let's just put it out and it just happened to be after they created one of the greatest most iconic monsters of all time the timing of it is poor to release this in the middle of the the creature from the black lagoon movies
1: yeah the- momentum just stopped completely. The creature was running and running and running and it just ran and got hit by a truck called Abbott and Costello.
0: <laughs> I guess that's a good enough transition as any. We can get into this. the stuff that I do have. I did find out some really cool stuff about some of the people involved in this film. Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of information about the film itself. Certainly no extras on the disc. There's nothing written online about it. If it's out there, it took more digging than I was able to put into it. So, all right. We've got Charles Lamont back in the director's chair. We've talked about him before. He's directed all of Abbott and Costello's movies since Abbott and Costello in the Foreign Legion in 1950. He kind of became the go-to guy for them at Universal. I think his first movie was Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. And in terms of like what we've covered on this show. So if you want to learn more about him, that would be the episode to check out. The screenplay was written by longtime Abbott and Costello collaborator, John Grant, and Lee Loeb, both of whom we've discussed before. They've kind of become the two who write these Abbott and Costello meet the monsters movies.
1: It's interesting because they probably have like the encyclopedia knowledge of all of their bits, right? So they don't have to like ask them they've seen their act a billion times
0: John Grant has contributed to almost all, if not all of the movies Abbott and Costello did together. So for 28 movies at most, and and he also worked on the Colgate Comedy Hour, he was intimately involved with them as a collaborator. And so, yeah, he would be the guy who knows all their bits and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to have him write this movie for sure one thing i noticed about this movie i think i meant to say this earlier i don't know if it's a doc against the movie or if it's to this movie's benefit but i noticed even though some of these gags do go on a little too long i did also notice the movie was padded by the dancers you mentioned and other performers right we have like two dance sequences we have a singer so i wonder if they had cut a lot of that stuff out because this movie's an hour and 20 minutes. And just had it kind of be a slim maybe hour and 10 minutes. If that wouldn't have made for a better movie.
1: Possibly. Like my suggestion is leave that stuff in. And cut back on the Abbott and Costello stuff a little bit. Just because there's very little new. Like keep the new stuff. Get rid of what we've seen before. I guess you got to keep the three mummies. You can't get rid of that.
0: I would like a little more mummy to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, you know that's a good point. Like for a movie called Meet the Mummy, there's very little mummy compared to what we're used to seeing.
0: I'm gonna give you a heads up now. There's a lot of TV actors in this one. This was the 50s. This is about that time when movie actors were transitioning to television and vice versa. We've got Bud Abbott and Lou Costello playing themselves this time. Yeah. This is the only time we've seen them actually play themselves. I think we've seen them used the names bud and lou before but they are straight up bud abbott and lou costello as adventures in egypt
1: Bud even starts yelling later hey costello hey where are you costello i was like wait what what's happening here they actually just playing themselves now like we remark on their names every movie and how they just get worse and worse and more and more lazy and like this is the epitome of it
0: i do have one interesting production note here and it has to do with that actually oh Oddly, in the script and in the credits, they are credited as Pete Patterson and Freddie Franklin.
1: Whoa, wait, what is up with that? I wonder why they're listed like that if they're not used in the movie.
0: I have no explanation for that. I don't have any good story, but I read that they were originally supposed to be Pete Patterson and Freddie Franklin, which is way better than using their actual names.
1: Oh, you think coming up with like actual names to call? (laughs) It's way better. Pete Patterson's a great name. I love that. And Freddie, Fra- they, they both got the uh, comic book alliteration going. Freddie Franklin.
0: We uh, are intimately familiar with Abbott and Costello at this point, so no need to get into all that. I think we spend the most time talking about them with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So by all means, if you're not familiar with them by now,
1: go check out that episode.
0: We've got Marie Windsor as Madame Rantrue, one of the stronger members of this cast, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, one of the better characters in the movie as well.
0: I'm going to say this. One of the best female leads that we've seen in a Universal Monster movie.
1: Yeah. It's like, I know I've seen her from somewhere before. And I mean, I've seen her in everything, apparently.
0: I'm about to tell you what she's done. She was an American actress, mostly known for playing femme fatales in a number of noir films, including Force of Evil and The Killing, which is what I know her from. But she also did so many B-movies that, like Evelyn Anchors, she was eventually known as a queen of the bees. She was a graduate of Brigham Young University was an accomplished dancer, swimmer, and horseback rider and was proficient at golf, tennis, and skiing.
1: Excellent, okay.
0: She was also unusually tall for a starlet of this era at a towering 5 foot 9 inches. This often created problems when performing with men of average height, and she often had to bend at the knees when playing opposite them. She originally trained for the stage under Maria Uspenskaya, who, if you remember from our Wolfman oh, episode, yeah. she ran her own acting school. She began her career on stage at the Pasadena Playhouse, like so many of the supporting actors we've talked about on this show. In 1942, she got her first film contract with Warner Brothers, thanks to a number of jokes she submitted to Jack Benny under the name M.E. Windsor. Yeah, She was concerned at the time that like, she wouldn't be taken seriously as a woman writing jokes, so she came up with that pseudonym, which I think is very clever. In 1948, after a few unproductive years at MGM, she signed a seven-year contract with the Enterprise Studios, which unfortunately folded the following year after just nine movies. Like so many actors of this era, she eventually transitioned to television in the late 50s, appearing on Maverick, Perry Mason, a two-part Mr. Freeze episode of Batman. Yeah. She also appeared on the FBI, The Incredible Hulk, Rawhide, (laughs) Adam-12,
1: Charlie's Angels. Amazing. She was on Batman and the hole. A woman after my own heart.
0: And she continued acting up into the nineties. She also was in Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot. She was on Murder, she wrote. This woman acted her entire life. I love her look. I get why she played a lot of Femme Fatales, because she yeah. has that nefarious vibe. Yeah, definitely one of the better actors we've seen in one of these movies.
1: Yeah, she definitely has this noir look to her of like perfect classic brunette with a gun. Um so good in this movie. I think too, probably the standout performer
0: we can both agree that Madame Rontru is an incredible character. Michael and Sarah plays Charlie. He's somebody you've seen before, for sure. He was born in the mandate for Syria and the Lebanon, which was founded in the aftermath of World War I and the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire, which I had no idea that was a thing. Okay. So before we had Syria and Lebanon, we had this sovereign nation called the Mandate for Syria and Lebanon. Yeah, he came from that. His family immigrated to the United States when he was just two years old. He originally wanted to be a physician, but developed an interest in performing after taking acting classes at the Pasadena Playhouse. And that was to help with his shyness. Okay. After college, he served as an army medic during World War II and began appearing in front of cameras in the early 1950s. Now, this guy did it all. He began with episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Lone Ranger and the 1953 film Julius Caesar before his career really took off with the TV series Broken Arrow, where he played the lead role of Cochise. During this time, he met his future wife Barbara Eden.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And this relationship led to roles on I Dream of Genie, where he famously played the Blue Jinn and he was also King Kamehameha. He also starred in the ABC series Law of the Plainsman, which was a spin-off of The Rifleman, as well as a number of biblical epics, including The Robe, The Ten Commandments, and The Greatest Story Ever Told. He was equally busy throughout the 60s, appearing in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, both the film and the TV series, Perry Mason, The Outer Limits, Lost in Space, The Fugitive, and Mission Impossible. One thing that I found really interesting about him, he's also one of only nine actors to play the same character on three different Star Trek
1: series. Oh, nice. He crosses over.
0: Yes. He played the Klingon commander Kang in the original series.
1: Kang and Kodos. Nice. (laughs) He was
0: in the original series Deep Space Nine and Voyager.
1: Kang aged through that far into Star Trek. I love that. He's like the Richard Belzer of Star Trek. I think I mentioned on the
0: show before, but if not, I've definitely been keeping track of it on my Twitter. Um, I've been working through Star Trek, and yes. I worked through the the original series. I'm now almost finished with Next Generation, and I've just started Deep Space Nine. Haven't seen him on DS9 yet, so I'm looking forward to that, and then of course I'll get to Voyager after. So I love that I, I have Michael and Sarah to look forward to.
1: Very nice. I also have him to look forward to because he's in an Elvis movie in 1965 called Harem Scarum.
0: I was going to mention that. There were two other credits that were worth mentioning on this show, one being harem scarum and then he was also mr freeze in batman the animated series yeah like
1: amazing mr freeze some of the best episodes the best character on that show such a great chilling performance i can't believe it. it is so awesome
0: that two episode arc or whatever it was on Batman in the animated series, like whatever Paul Dini wrote, like that changed the game for Mr. Freeze. Isn't that the story that sort of introduced this idea of Freeze as being a guy trying to save his
1: wife? Turned him into a more of an empathetic character. Yeah. And that's not all, Dan, because apparently he is also in the 1978 Doctor Strange TV movie that was supposed to be sort of a pilot episode for a series that never was. But it's a cool movie. I suggest everybody check out that 78 Doctor Strange movie. It's got Jessica Walter as Morgan Le Fay, the villain.
0: Uh, Now I want to check that out too. Good looking out. We've got Dan Seymour as Joseph. He was an American character actor who began in Burlesque as a song and dance man and an MC before he moved to Hollywood where he often played villains for Warner Brothers, appearing with Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, To Have and Have Not, and Key Largo. He also of course appeared on a lot of TV throughout the 60s, including The Untouchables, voyage to the bottom of the sea the man from uncle my favorite martian beverly hillbillies perry mason and get smart as well as two first season episodes of batman where he played the maharaja
1: amazing all right
0: right as soon as i saw all these batman actors i'm like this is gonna be great
1: it's just like a rogues gallery like throughout this entire series of podcasts for some reason we've come across so much
0: i guess that's the next thing we got to do is a batman 66 podcast
1: don't you dare tempt me to just turn this into a bat cast.
0: <laughs> I've said this before on this show. I think I, I think that's the, the logical next step. We just got to do it. But okay, we got Richard Deacon as Simu. I recognized this guy, and I couldn't figure out why. But then I looked at his credits, and it, it all made sense to me. He was a prolific American character actor of TV and film. He has a long list of credits, bit and supporting roles in Carousel, The Jack Benny Program, Gunsmoke, Get Smart, Bonanza, The Munsters, and The Adams Family. But he is best known for his roles as Mel Cooley on The Dick Van Dyke Show. Oh, wow which is where I know him from. He was Fred Rutherford on Leave it to Beaver.
1: Uh, I didn't watch as much Beaver, but for some reason as a kid, we had Nick at Night. I watched a lot of Dick Van Dyke.
0: Yeah. So it turns out that this was one of the rare performances where he wasn't wearing glasses. And I think that's why I couldn't figure out where he was from. And then if you put glasses on that face, it's, he's unmistakably Mel Cooley.
1: Very coolly. Yeah, he's in a bunch of fun stuff. You know, Piranha, This Island Earth, that's come up a bit. The Birds, he's in there. But one of my mom's favorites ever, the original in Invaders from Mars. That was always a fun one.
0: Yep. And he's in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
1: Man, he's making the rounds.
0: Yeah. Richard Carlin played a Hetsuit. He was a guy I couldn't really find a whole lot of information about in terms of his career. I mean, you can look at his credits. He did a lot of TV through the 50s and 60s. A lot of his roles were uncredited. Mel Wells plays Eben. Our listeners may be most familiar with him as the original Mushnik in Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors. Outside of that, he was a little bit of a renaissance man, having worked as a clinical psychologist, a radio DJ, a TV actor, writer, and director. He began on stage like many actors before appearing in his first film in 1953. In the 1960s, he traveled to Europe where he produced and directed cult horror films, including Man Eater of Hydra and Lady Frankenstein.
1: Oh, Lady Frankenstein, Dan. Put it on the list.
0: Being fluent in five languages, he also started a dubbing company where he dubbed over 800 European films. When he eventually returned to the US, he went back to appearing in films, doing voice work and teaching voice acting. Gregory Corey plays Habid. Now, I'm going to say right now he's the only actor in this movie who I cannot figure out who he is.
1: Oh, what character he plays?
0: He's credited as Habid, but I am not sure which character is Habib. That
1: guy is in the movie. Okay.
0: Yeah. I watched this movie a couple times and I was watching with the subtitles and I couldn't figure out who this character is but he's in the main credits there are a couple other speaking roles in this like there's the cafe manager you know when when Evan oh, right. Costello kind of pay him off to hide from the guards right right uh, or from the police he speaks and then the, the two police officers speak so like maybe it's one of them I have no idea which character okay. is Habib but the actor is the only Egyptian member of the cast at least the only credited Egyptian member of the cast his career consists mostly of uncredited roles throughout the 1950s. I couldn't find a whole lot of interesting information based on his, you know, IMDB filmography, but I was able to find that out. Kurt Catch plays Dr. Zoomer. Did if he looked familiar to you? That's because we saw him as Cajun Joe in The Mummy's Curse.
1: He did not look familiar to me, nor did he sound familiar because he was not sporting that accent.
0: If you want to learn more about him, go back and listen to our Mummy's Curse episode. We talked all about him. Eddie Parker, we've talked about before. He plays clarice He was a longtime stuntman and actor. He was in Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So you can go check out that episode if you want to know more about Eddie Parker. The Mazzone Abbott dancers uh, are credited as one of the dance troops. And Chandra Kaylee and his dancers are the other dance troupe. I'm not sure which. I would assume that maybe they're listed in order that we see them in the movie. The dance group that you were most impressed with was that first one. Yeah, Yeah, definitely both groups are very talented dancers. I loved the performances. Peggy King is a vocalist in this. What's interesting about her, her name is very prominent on the poster.
1: Maybe she was signed to the record label that bought Isn't it would you say Decca?
0: Decca, yeah. Yeah,
1: maybe she was signed to Decca and they're like, "Hey, we got room to pad this movie out a little bit. Let's add just a Peggy King performance in here."
0: What I could find was that she was a jazz vocalist who appeared on a ton of variety shows throughout the 50s, Uh, American Bandstand, the Perry Como show, Jack Benny, and a bunch of others. And then when she did appear in movies, she was... Pretty much in the same kind of role as a singer. You might be right that she had some kind of deal with the record label and they just decided to put her in movies. I find that it interesting that her name is, aside from Abbott and Costello, her name is the biggest name on the poster in terms of like the size of the font. Her name is bigger than Marie Windsor and Michael and Sarah, who are the other two billed actors.
1: I stick to my theory that, you know, she had a record coming out around the same time, so they snuck her in the movie somehow.
0: Had to be. But when I saw her name on the poster, it was as prominent as it was, I had to know who she was.
1: And I will say, she's a wonderful singer. Yeah, it's a good song. I will say this about the song and dance. For me, it does not, that's not what's like slowing the movie down at all. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, all right, we're getting into the dance sequence here we're gonna get oh nice it's like you know I feel feel like there was another Abbott and Costello movie that also felt a lot like watching the vaudeville show and this one is sort of doing the same things at times
0: yeah I got the sense that because I think by this time Abbott and Costello were doing the Colgate Comedy Hour and a lot of people came through that show I would be surprised if they didn't pull talent from their you know from that show to put in the movie you know, people who they had worked with before and wanted to showcase them in one of their movies as well. But I agree with you that they are not a hindrance on this movie. They are really fun to watch, for sure. Even if they do feel a little bit out of place, you know, I could argue that it feels like a little bit out of place. Maybe it's because the rest of the material feels stale that whenever they show up on screen, I'm like, okay, cool. We get a break from everything else. We can watch these talented dancers or this singer. I have very complicated feelings about this movie. Okay, so let's get into the movie itself. Pretty standard opening credits here.
1: The hieroglyph on the wall of Abbott and Costello.
0: I always enjoy these Abbott and Costello opening credits, So they're nothing better than the fully animated Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein.
1: Pretty standard credits here. At least we get a little cartoon drawing, you know? I feel like there is one or two where they're just like, we're not even going to have a guy draw a picture of him. Or no, there's going to be no caricatures of them at all or anything.
0: Okay, so this movie opens with narration.
1: That threw me off a little bit.
0: We got some B-roll of, like, Egypt. So, Men on Camels. We got the pyramids. And we get this funny narration where this guy's like, you know, it's been said that a man's best friend is his mummy. In Egypt today, this theory is to be in great dispute. For two bold adventurers are about to discover another kind of mummy.
1: Like, it's okay. They're going to do that mummy, mommy, daddy joke again later. So, I mean, at least right out of the gate, we know what level of comedic sophistication we'll be dealing with for the next hour and 20 minutes
0: they get quite a bit of mileage out of the mummy bit
1: and the snake charming stuff like the music's gonna start here and like they do the snake charming flute gag five or six times so like get used to that
0: we open properly in the cafe baghdad which is interesting to me geographically because we're supposed to be in egypt
1: yeah yeah shouldn't it be like cairo or something like that like the cafe cairo
0: I mean, the Wikipedia says they're stranded in Cairo, Egypt. So they're in okay. Egypt. This remains confusing. Okay, so we're at the Café Baghdad, which for some reason is in Cairo. Moving on from that, we get a little bit of dancing from what I assume are the Mazone Abbott
1: dancers. Yeah, you say a little bit of dancing. Dan, what is happening here is... They are just catching each other, whipping them around their bodies and throwing them away, just like throwing each other. It's like a throw dance. Like, and there's like all kinds of crazy ballroom stuff involved where they're like, you know, throwing them up and catching them and going all around the body and like wrestling moves where they're doing like the propeller thing around and like the person's up on their shoulders and everything. It's so insane and incredibly impressive. Like I was blown away by this.
0: I was going to say it felt like swing dance meets pro wrestling
1: that's it yeah and there's such an energy to it and such like a violence to it too you know at one point he's like dragging her across the floor on her hair and you know oh I understand like that's all safe in a move and it's like supposed to be partially like interpretive but what story is this dance telling it is intense
0: yeah you're reading my mind right now what is most impressive about this sequence is that it's lightning fast they don't stop to breathe and the fact that like nobody got hurt or presumably Nobody got hurt and like this is what they did Night after night I'm out of breath thinking About
1: it and it goes on They're so quick but it goes On like you know they're performing It fast like you said like they're running through this performance but it lasts like a good while you know I'm sure there's got to be a clip of this on YouTube I mean this is this is amazing.
0: I would assume that all of the performance in this both dance groups and Peggy King were all just bringing an act that they already had in their repertoire and brought yeah. it into this movie so I'm gonna do some research after we finish recording see if I can't find this full performance somewhere on YouTube and then you know if I can find it I'll share it in the show notes for sure this is one of the most impressive dance sequences i feel weird calling it a dance it does feel like dance but at the same time it i feel more comfortable describing it as like just this choreographed performance
1: no it's like fight dancing or something it's so hard to explain but like this so amazing it's so visually just astounding and like yeah i could have just watched a movie about these people and what compels a person to perform like this if
0: west side story had been choreographed like this i think i would like that movie way more
1: oh that would have been incredible
0: So while that's going on, while this amazing dance routine is happening, our heroes, Abbott and Costello, uh, walk into this cafe. They're wearing their sort of traditional khakis and, and a pith helmet. They sit down to enjoy the show. We get a gag where a waiter comes out with a flaming shish kebab. Costello, seeing that it's on fire, goes to put it out with a glass of water twice right in the face.
1: Yeah, the kebab joke, I figured once was enough. I didn't think they were going to come back. And if they did, like, I'm surprised that no one threw a flaming kebab at the mummy in the end of the movie. You know, like I (laughs) thought for sure he was going to be set on fire somehow. What better way than a flaming kebab?
0: No, that would have been cool. That would have been a cool finale. Although, I don't have issues with the finale here, really. But that would have been, I think, a better visual, for sure. Also, during that sequence, we are introduced to Dr. Zumer, who is sitting at a table in the cafe with a bunch of colleagues, and He's talking about how he has discovered the mummy Claris, and presumably within that sarcophagus is some clue as to the location of the treasure of Princess Ara. I'm just gonna say right off the bat, I don't know why they changed the mummy from Caris to Claris. And Ara to Ananka. I feel like that was arbitrary and unnecessary.
1: Yeah, I was surprised that we got all new lore in a lot of ways. That Claris is just the bodyguard of Princess Ara's resting place, her tomb, and that in that tomb is a treasure. The movie is basically about. There's supposed to be some business about a medallion that has like the clues. To how to find the treasure. Like that's pretty straightforward. Like I don't mind that per se. I get why they streamlined all that for this new movie, but like the whole idea of just calling him Claris feels more like a burn, right? Like it feels like they're trying to make fun of the mummy, but it just also falls kind of flat like it, it's like we're getting ready to have like a parody here like oh the original one was Karis. this one's claris you would think like princess Ananka, they would have called her princess Badanka. it just felt like they got the ball rolling and then kind of dropped it I was, yeah i was ready for them to really riff on more of the mummy lore i thought that would have been a funny way to take this
0: I think if it had gone more in that direction where it was like a Mad Magazine parody of The Mummy, I would have had more fun with it, but it pulls its punches. Just changing The Mummy's name doesn't really do a whole lot for this movie. I think if they had just kept it as Karis, played the rest the way they pretty much do, I think it at least would have been it would have stayed true to The Mummy. I think what we liked most about when they met Jekyll and Hyde is that they kept the monster a monster and here. He's just kind of a joke. I think this is exactly what Boris Karloff was afraid of when they wanted to do Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This is the point where they've made the monster a joke. And, and I think that's why it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, I think there's a way to make it work. It's just I was confused as to what the movie wanted me to kind of think about it. Like so much of it is also played very straight. You know right. what I mean? And like that confused me a lot because overall the tone is is looney tunes like straight up and down like even like sound effects all that kind of stuff just complete crazy town it just confused me at times you know where i was like oh some things are the naked gun Uh, i wish all of it was and then other things are like oh they are trying to make like a mummy movie not so sure like i felt the balance right
0: okay so in this scene as dr zoomer is is talking about claris and the hidden treasure he's overheard by an egyptian man we don't know who he is yet but we will learn that he is one of Simu's cultists you know Simu is uh, who we also haven't met yet is is the head of this like Egyptian cult he's presumably a high priest who's in charge of protecting Clarus and and Princess Ara so it's one of his men he relays the message that Dr. Zumer has located Clarus and so on and then also in that same kind of scene Bud Abbott wanders into that conversation and overhears that Dr. Zoomer needs just a couple guys who can help him get Clarus back to the United States. And that's sort of the scene that sets everything into motion, gets everybody involved into the sarcophagus of Clarus.
1: In that sequence, also at the club, are we not also introduced to Madame Rontrew and one of her thugs too? Like I thought at this time we get everybody on the board because I was starting to get confused Like who was together even. Whose thugs belong to which criminal? Really? <laughs> yeah. So
0: Joseph also yes. wanders yes. through that scene as well, and and he immediately heads back to Madame Rontru to let her know. So yeah, this is like everybody in this scene is caught up to speed on what Doctor Zoomer has been up to.
1: I both like and also have a hard time keeping up with the way that this movie is presented. I mean, I feel like another Abbott and Costello did this, where we're really only going to get like four or five like really big, long sequences. So much happens here at this bar that it feels like several scenes. And so much is going to happen sort of later on in sequences that it's going to feel just like super long, you know? And and maybe it's just attributed to the way movies used to be made as opposed to today. It's like we're just going to spend a very a long time in some of these locations and for the most part i don't have a problem with it but it did become noticeable here where i'm like we're really moving around this bar a lot um i was just kind of having trouble getting my bearings
0: yeah i don't think the scene played too long but i do think everything happens very quickly and if you're not paying attention it's easy to forget mm-hmm who is who. Yeah, I think
1: that's what happened to me a little bit.
0: Obviously, we know who Abbott and Costello are, but we've got two, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call them two villains, right? We've got Simu and we've got Madame Rontru. And they each have two henchmen keeping track of who is representing who gets to be very difficult this scene does run through a lot of that information very quickly i feel the confusion there for sure i mean even just now because i think it was joseph who wandered through that scene and then went back to Rontru. but either way simu his men find out. Not totally clear. But the following scene, we head straight to Dr. Zumer's office. He's recording his notes into an old fashioned recorder.
1: Yeah, I was getting uh, heavy Evil Dead vibes. Yes. That. <laughs> yeah, oh, Hell yeah.
0: And while he's recording his notes, he is killed with a, a blow dart, of all yep. things. And these two men belong to Dr. Simu. I eventually learned to discern the two by their wardrobe. Right. Here's the thing about this movie we haven't really talked about yet, is that for Egyptian Egyptians, every actor in this movie is white. Yes. I mean, not all of them. Obviously, Michael Ansara is Lebanese. And so, you know, it's easy to keep track of him. But everybody else is like a white man in a beard and a turban or a white man in, you know, a fez. It can be difficult, right? So I learned that Simu's men are the ones who are dressed more stereotypically Egyptian. So they're wearing striped robes and they've got turbans on, whereas Madame Rontru's men are dressed in suits so that's how you keep track of them
1: her guys are like a little more modern and the other guys are a little more traditional
0: yes so Evan Costello arrive just as Dr. Zumer has been killed they don't know this yet their whole plan is to kind of get in on this job here they're trying to get back home the implication is that they're stranded in Cairo volunteering for this job would get them back to the United States transporting the mummy back to the
1: US and I love how they're just going to show up and what be like hey I overheard at a bar that you're looking for anybody to kind of just uh, look over this here artifact of yours like he didn't even meet this guy yet or anything they're just just there's so down on their luck they need like money any way they can
0: when they get there they're talking about how he has a mummy and costello thinks he's saying mommy the joke is that oh well no his mummy is a man and and like oh what a strange country this is like i didn't know what to make of that whole joke
1: it was weird to see from a movie in 1955 i actually felt like it was sort of like clever and very well handled for what it was because the joke basically goes the guy's a mummy and he's like but my mummy's a woman and he's like but a mummy could be a man too there's nothing wrong with that that's like the gist of the joke is that like a mom can be a guy and and that's no different you know and so I wasn't sure like which way it was falling for the times if it wasn't sensitive because it didn't feel like cruel or anything like that it just felt very much like a play on words type of joke
0: yes I was just about to say it felt more like an innocent play on words than anything nefarious or uh, you know legitimately mean spirited, I would like to know if anybody has any other perspectives to offer on this. But it seemed strange to hear what could be interpreted as a I'm going to say mildly transphobic joke in a 1955 Abbott and Costello movie. I like to think that I'm pretty sensitive to these sorts of things, and I didn't feel like that it, that it was a, a malicious joke. But again, I would love to hear somebody else's perspective if someone disagrees. But yeah, strange to hear that. I just. Caught me off guard a little bit.
1: Me too. Me too.
0: Okay, so this is an extended sequence where the same gag is more or less repeated a couple times until the scene is over.
1: This is what I'm talking about. We're going to spend a lot of time in this office.
0: Hopefully we don't spend a lot of time talking about this sequence. I'm going to try and like breeze through the gist of it. And then so we can move on. Before Abbott and Costello enter the office, Hatsut and Abid manage to remove the mummy. The mummy, Claris, is alive. And they take him out of the sarcophagus. They hide Dr. Zumer's body. And we don't know where the mummy goes for the rest of this, really. But the scene is going to track the whereabouts of Dr. Zoomer. So they hide Dr. Zoomer's corpse in one place. Lou Costello, while looking around the office, finds it, gets scared, goes to get Abbott. And then when they go back to where the corpse was, it's been moved. And this happens three or four times.
1: Yeah, over and over. And it's happened in all the other movies to an extent where it's like, Lou will see something, go get Bud. By the time they get back, it's gone. Over and over again, every single movie, whether it be, look, a Dracula, where? I don't see no Dracula. Look, you know, a Wolfman, where? I don't see no Wolfman, you know? And it's now it's like, look, a dead body. And it's like, I don't see no dead body, you know? Like, what are you doing? It just keeps going on and on.
0: He does find Clarus once. That's the last time we see Clarus until like the final half hour or so. So there is one interaction where Lou Costello encounters the mummy. But for the most part, it's yeah, it's just the same bit repeated over and over. We learn that the sarcophagus does not have the medallion in it. So the henchmen here are one for two. But by the end of this sequence, Abbott and Costello will find that medallion. And then that is the impetus for the rest of this movie. One gag that I did kind of enjoy is that when, the, I think it's the first time. Lou finds the corpse of Dr. Zumer. He's in like a closet and he's been told to photograph everything so that they can take it to the authorities. And he finds Dr. Zoomer like just sitting upright, eyes open, completely still, not realizing that he's dead. And he's like, oh, hey, uh, hang on a second. I gotta take a picture of you.
1: I actually like the bit where the body's been moved a couple times at this point and Lou goes to the bathroom and washes his hands and he's like using a towel to dry his face and he looks up and it's actually the shirt of the dead doctor. I was like, that could have just been the one bit. Like, that would have worked great. I feel like he screams too much in this movie, too. Do you? And it's it's like a siren. It's like an ambulance screaming down the street sometimes, you know? It's very loud for (laughs) me at this age, the decibel level. If I was wearing an Apple Watch, I'm sure it would have been like, hey, check the decibels.
0: I will say this for this movie, like maybe one of the things I like more than the invisible man. One of the issues I had with their movie with the invisible man is that Bud Abbott seemed to also be like aware of the invisible man and in on the whole thing. And so like that dynamic of Costello seeing something real and scary and then bringing, Bud Abbott in, who doesn't believe in any of that nonsense. That, to me, is what was always funny, is that one of them believed it. The other one didn't. And anytime the one tried to prove it to the other, like the evidence was gone, that was gone in their Invisible Man movie. To me, the dynamic didn't feel like Abbott and Costello as I knew them. Here, at least that dynamic is intact.
1: I hear you. Yeah, it is. It
0: might be a nitpick. It is something that I find that I love about them as a comedy team. When it's not consistent with that, I didn't think it would bother me, but it did.
1: Oh, so this next part was kind of cool because Lou goes into the room and the doctor's sitting there and he accidentally like, hits the play button on the tape recorder and starts talking and he thinks that he's alive he's like "Ah, oh, you're alive okay and he's like answering the questions that he's saying on the tape recorder that was a pretty good bit
0: which will come into play later this tape recorder some of these gags do work
1: Bud comes in and sees the dead body and is like, hey, we got to take a bunch of pictures, you know? We got to get proof of the dead body.
0: Yes, and of course, as Abbott is lifting Dr. Zumer into his chair, that's when Costello takes the photo, and that will become a plot point in a few scenes. With Dr. Zumer dead and the evidence photographed, Abbott and Costello put the evidence in the envelope with a note, and they're going to take it to the authorities.
1: Instead, they just hand it to some little kid on the street, and they're like, hey, go give this to the cops.
0: Again, that'll come into play a little bit later. But now we go back to this temple, Simu and his cultists. This is like another dance sequence.
1: Yeah, people stand behind each other and it looks like they've got like eight arms and they all dance in unison. Like it's very cool looking.
0: It is very cool. But yeah, I think this scene does go on a little longer than it needs to. It's a weird place to put a dance sequence.
1: Yeah, well, they're celebrating the return of the mummy and they're drinking. He's, he's like, they're feeding it the tea. They don't call it Tana Leaf Tea or anything like that. But the mummy's alive, like it's been moving. And there's a lot of business about like, we got to find this medallion so we can find the treasure.
0: The cult here, their only motivation seems to be to preserve Princess Ara's fortune. That's their only real goal here.
1: Yeah, they want the medallion so no one else can have it. And Madame Rontru, like, she just wants the treasure. She doesn't really care about the mummy stuff.
0: Right. With Karis now, like, being fed his daily diet of the tannity, we get back to Abbott and Costello, who are at, like, a cafe. They're talking about this whole situation. There is a fun gag here. It does feel shoehorned in but it did make me laugh when he goes to approach this woman who's coming out of this cafe and she immediately thinks he's trying to ask her out
1: on a date. I couldn't tell if she wanted it and was being so sort of like aggressive about it It was like oh you think i'm just gonna tell you where i live well my address is and then she tells him the address and then it's like and if you don't find me there you want to know where i work well i work right here at this cafe where you could find me like between this time and this time and like oh and also my name is this and here's my business card so like i didn't know what the hell was going
0: on i I have to assume that this was a bit from the Colgate Comedy Hour or some other burlesque performance. A lot of these guest stars are bringing, like I said before, are bringing in stuff that they've already done and established
1: elsewhere. But I'm confused because I'm thinking this is a new character. Like, because I've seen Abbott and Costello monster movies before, and there's always two women, one on each side, one working for the good, one working for the bad, and they're both trying to, like, play... Abbott and Costello trying to grift them. Right, right. And so I didn't know what was happening. I was like, are we going to see her again?
0: And we don't. She's literally in it for that one scene, which makes me think that she was just put in there to pad the movie a little bit, more performance. I don't know who she is. My guess is that that was like an old Abbott and Costello either radio bit or um, from their TV show. Either way, it made me laugh because I hadn't seen it before. It was funny. I'm looking for anything I can like in this movie.
1: I wonder if any of that's going to happen in this next sequence with the marketplace.
0: So they buy a newspaper from a kid selling newspapers, and they read this story about the, how Dr. Zoomer was found dead, and, you know, they're looking for the suspects and so on. But when he buys this paper from the kid, the kid takes his money, gets one look at him and like screams and runs off. What Abbott is just about to learn is that the photo they published in the newspaper is of him with Dr. Zumer, like putting him in the chair. So implicating him in the crime, essentially.
1: That was pretty funny. That was the picture they used. Not bad. And that sort of sets them off, like throughout the marketplace, running from the cops. They pay off the guy at the cafe and they get into some disguises. Reminds me a A little bit of Hulk and Thor running around trying to hide themselves in Thor Ragnarok.
0: We get another extended sequence. So Alan Costello in these robes with hoods. For whatever reason, they've kept their pith helmets on, so they have these giant heads. Can't figure that out. But we get a couple snake charming gags. The first of many.
1: Yeah, first time's fine, I guess. And then you know the snake only comes out of the basket behind Lou Costello. You know every time he tries to set it up, like the snake keeps coming out of his basket. It just all felt kind of slowish to me. It all just felt go a little quicker. I
0: think it's because we both saw what the gag was going to be before we saw it.
1: It does end with a pretty interesting special effect, though. Like, I did kind of like that. I like that, and I like the lizard later that we'll talk about. But, you know, there's two cops at first and then there's four cops and they're like let's try this and since the snake charming thing has been working so well like Bud Abbott grabs a rope Luke Costello starts playing the charm through his flute and Bud Abbott starts levitating yeah. with the rope in the middle of the marketplace and I was like oh okay like they pulled that off pretty well
0: you describe this as a Looney Tune and I think this might be the most Looney Tune sequence in the whole thing
1: by far but I mean at least it looked good or at least it was past and you could tell what was supposed to be going on.
0: Yeah, I don't remember seeing any wires. The whole stunt does play pretty well. Easily the most cartoony thing in the whole movie.
1: Yeah, and I do wish that they introduced more magic if they're going to do that, you know, because it is a magic rope trick kind of thing. And it's like, oh, uh, like we do have a living mummy here, but like give us more magic. Why didn't they just run into a magician at some point? Or one of the characters should have just, you know, straight up been able to do real Shazam type magic.
0: Next scene. Madame Rontru and her henchmen visit Dr. Zumer in search of the mummy and or this medallion. Abbott and Costello go back to Dr. Zumer's office with the intention of capturing the real criminals. Yeah. Uh, The idea is that they're going to like record some stuff on the recorder and with the playback, it'll confuse the criminal, right? And sort of lure them into that room. They'll capture them and take them to the police.
1: Yeah. I love how Bud Abbott's like, we got to clear my name. And Luke Costello's like, I need to find the courage to do this. That kind of becomes the arc for the next sequence
0: yeah right because there's that whole thing like be tough like me he ends up recording himself speaking in this really like goofy tough guy voice like no, this is a gun put your hands up or i'll shoot
1: you off shoot you full of the lid i got a remark on something Abbott and costello do all the time that we've talked about is that like they just treat every place they're in like their own house like when they first went to dr zoomers like they didn't know he was dead they didn't never met him before and they just kind of walked right into his house yep. start looking around for him wherever they want to go now they're back in the house he's like playing with his instruments and his recording devices and he's he's like i wonder if i can sound tough and he records himself doing like a stick up or a hold up right he's like put him up back out of the room and then he like listens back to it and he's like yeah i guess i am tough but as he's like listening back to it bud abbott thinks it's a real dude like he didn't hear him the first time maybe he turned the volume up really loud after he recorded it for the playback
0: Rontru and her, her two guys hear them and immediately
1: hide. In the trophy room, right? Is that what they call it?
0: Basically. So Abbott and Costello are in that room, kind of knocking around on the walls, uh, looking for like any secret hidden passageways. It's not long before they find the medallion in that room, and as soon as they do, Rontru kind of gives up her hiding place, right? She kind of gives herself up, and suddenly Charlie and Joseph come out of their spots. And now it becomes sort of like a chase through Dr. Zoomer's office to get this medallion from them. And this all comes to a head in like Dr. Zoomer's main office area when two police officers show up. And the whole plan really, I guess, is to use that recording. Lou Costello saying, you know, I've got a gun and I'm gonna shoot you full of lead and whatever. And it tricks them into like putting their hands up and turning around so they can jump out the window and escape.
1: It's very much like Home alone, right? With like Angel with Dirty Faces. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a hundred percent that bit. For whatever reason it works. So they escape arrest, they escape being killed by Ron true Now they have this medallion that everybody wants.
1: And everyone thinks it's cursed. I actually like this next scene because it's just Bud and Lou going like, What's up with this medallion? Everybody wants it. It must be worth something. Let's try and sell it to find out what it's worth. Like let's hit up a pawn shop.
0: Yeah, right before that, we get a small scene where Hetzut and Iben over here, and Costello have the medallion, and they, they report back to Simu. But yeah, the following scene, they decide, in order to find the value of this, Medallion, they're going to take it to a pawn shop and see what they can get for it. Hopefully, get back
1: to the United States, maybe. They bring it to the guy, and he's just like, It's cursed. Like, I don't want this. Like, get out of here. Get out of my store. <laughs>
0: Two characters in this movie tell them point blank that it's a cursed artifact. But this is the first. He's um, proprietor of a pawn shop, doesn't want anything to do with it. That's Ron True's cue. As she's walking by, she notices them in this shop, comes in, and uh, tries to pass it off as like costume jewelry. Smart. She tries to give them $100
1: for it. And then Abbott's like, how about five grand? And she's like, damn it, I was so close. She's like, if only it was the stupid small guy and this tall, like, smart guy wasn't here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she plays a little bit of that typical, like, evil woman gonna mm-hmm. play Lou Costello like she's into him. She does a little bit of that here.
1: Right, like, try and charm Lou. Like, yeah, again, it's it's the whole matchstick men thing that always happens to them. The lovely woman never is actually uh, in love with him. It's always trying to use him.
0: 100%. They make plans to meet at the Café Baghdad later that night. As she says, even if she was willing to pay $5,000 for that medallion, it's too much money to be carrying on her. The plan is to meet back at the Café Baghdad to make the exchange. Before that, we get another Snake Charming bit for no real reason at all. But I did like that Bud Abbott plays a little bit of that Bugs Bunny, like one for you, one for me, two for me, one for you. You know, like he's trying to divvy up the cash and everything that he's budgeting favors him. He gets a new suit. He gets to fly first class. Costello can get a shoe shine. He's going to fly third class. Yeah, that was pretty good. You know what?
1: I do like that about their dynamic too, is like I'm kind of coming around to that. I, I liked it when Bud Abbott, is sort of down on the level of lou costello sometimes but it can't be the whole movie you know it can't be like the invisible man i understand that now they've got to get there right the eventually by the end of the movie they're at the same place and i think that's part of the fun is like seeing bud's journey of being like overconfident to being like as scared as lou is at the end
0: yes that, to me, is key, especially in these, I'm going to call them horror movies, or any time they're up against really dangerous threat. In this movie, it's a mummy, but also you've got these dangerous cultists. In fact, in this scene, before they leave the pawn shop, Simu and, and his two guys show up for that medallion, and they manage to run away. But yeah, they're filled with these threats, and I think one of them has to be in on it, one of them doesn't. It only really works in that context.
1: So now we go back to the club, and I guess this is where the top build Peggy... Peggy King song comes in
0: yes so this is the Peggy King song she sings a song about being from St. Louis and she's
1: great you know the movie just kind of stops and is like hey everybody Peggy King is gonna sing
0: So once Abbott and Costello show up, they get themselves a table. They basically just have to wait for Rontru to arrive.
1: Yeah, the big bit here is the waiter comes over and they ask him about the medallion. And he's like, oh, I don't want that. Like, whoever has that is cursed. And so, like, this bit is now, like, them trying to sneak the medallion into each other's pocket.
0: Costello is trying to get rid of it altogether. Once he realizes this thing is legitimately dangerous, he sticks it in a bouquet of flowers to give back. Like he plays that like, oh, I'll, let me let me see the flowers, throws them in there. Oh, I don't have any money. So he gives them back. But the woman selling them is like, oh, well, they're a little wilted. You can have them for nothing. So now he's stuck with the flowers and the medallion, which he throws onto a waiter's platter. And then the waiter comes back and tells him, oh, you sir, you left this. So he can't get rid of the medallion. And then it turns into this gag where so they've ordered two hamburgers and Two cups of coffee. They hide the medallion in the burger, and then they play that classic game where they distract each other and try to switch the burger, so they don't hang on to it.
1: And then Luke Costello ends up eating the medallion. Yes, he eats the whole thing. I
0: will say that as, as sort of silly and cartoony as that whole sequence was, I did find the Foley work to be really fun.
1: Yeah, like the crunching of the metal and the gears and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah,
0: I could hear a chain in there. Like whoever was doing the Foley work on this movie, I think was having a good time.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they owned a slide whistle, so they got hired. I think
0: it's because we all know where this scene is going, that it just takes way too long. It's a stale gag otherwise, and it just goes on for minutes.
1: Yeah, but luckily Ron Tru shows up eventually. She
0: does show up. Both Joseph and Charlie are there, kind of waiting to apprehend them.
1: This is a weird sequence. Like, she's like, oh, okay, let's do our deal now and, um, like, Lou, you come with me into a private room and, bud, you go fuck off. Like, I hate you.
0: I don't believe at all that they would be separated like this.
1: Right? But she's like, I'm only gonna deal, like, with him because he is the one who, like, owns the medallion. Like, when was that established? At the pawn shop? I, I thought, like, it was both of theirs but i guess he's taking ownership
0: yeah i guess this whole scene it's meant to be like a like she wanted to get them alone together
1: yeah yeah so she could steal the medallion not pay for
0: it correct and she's got her henchmen sort of hidden throughout this room one of them is hiding in uh, a taxidermied lion head hanging on the wall
1: very cool visual i thought like very surreal i feel like it's in the wrong movie
0: it felt like a live action scooby-doo sequence
1: I don't understand this. If you're going to separate them and get Lou Costello with the medallion in a room, by himself. Just have the henchmen come in and, like, knock him out and take the thing from him. You don't need to play this game. I understand they're doing it for us because it's the movie, and I appreciate it, folks. Like, this is some bizarre stuff with the arms coming out of the floor and the side of the wall and the the lion's mouth and the taxidermy lion somehow going cross-eyed. I appreciate how wacky this is and everything like that, but, like, honestly, man, I would have enjoyed it so much more if he's just like, oh, you duped me. You got me in a room all by myself. Now you're going to steal my medallion. (laughs) Just get it over with.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah i think that's the issue is that we've discussed m- multiple times already that it's another bit that just goes on a little too long we've got a man hidden in the taxidermy lion we've got another man disguised as like a statue and there's a revolving wall the classic revolving wall bit and then maybe the least inspired gag in this sequence is when they're sitting on the couch and a hand comes up through the floor like somebody cut a hole in the carpet and then the hand comes up and like takes his money
1: and he notices it and like gives it back because that's the money she Pays him for the medallion, but he ate the medallion, you know? And so, like, that's going to be discovered in this sequence, too. And it's like they're going to have to go get like an X ray and all this shit. And like that next sequence, when they go to the Dr. Azui or whatever, like, I was like, oh, another doctor. And then, like, no, he's in one sequence where they have to. Prove that he ate the medallion. It was weird.
0: At the end of this scene, Charlie and Joseph have basically gotten a hold of Bud Abbott. They come storming into the room. They officially capture Abbott and Costello. Before we get to the x ray scene, Hetzut witnesses this goes running to Simu and lets him know that, that Abbott and Costello are no longer suspects in this murder because <laughs> yeah. they have discovered that Dr. Zumer was killed by a poison dart embedded in his ear, which would implicate Simu.
1: Yeah, so isn't that why the other henchmen isn't there? I thought this was hilarious. I was like, this is so unnecessary, but they're just like, hey, audience, just so you know, like, but Abbott, he's in the clear. Like, he might not know it as a character, but just so you're sure, he's not wanted for murder anymore. They found out it was a poison dart in the autopsy, so they arrested the other henchman of Simu. Like, that's why he's not in the movie, right? He's gone. I feel like he's gone from the movie. Didn't they, like, arrest the other henchman?
0: It was Eben who reported that news, and Simu mentions that, well, Hetzut put the noose around his neck.
1: That's funny to me. Like, that's not a joke in the movie or anything, but it's just such a funny thing to put in there, where it's like, oh, by the way, here's how they solved the murder. Anyway, it's not important to the movie anymore, whatever. But
0: So the authorities are no longer involved. Now it's just down to Abbott, Costello, Simu, and uh, Ron True and their respective henchmen. We get to the next scene where Ron True has Abbott and Costello at this doctor's office, and she's going to take what they call a fluoroscope. It's like an X-ray.
1: I like how she- She's like, I don't need your help, doctor. Like, I know how to work this machine. How hard could it be? And she, like, really does work the machine.
0: <laughs> yeah. My favorite thing about this scene, though, is that they take the x-ray. They only see, like, some random letters. They see a, a bobby pin, a button, I think, as well. Like, Lou Costello just eats everything.
1: He's like a billy goat.
0: But they don't see the medallion. They see some some rearranged letters. And the idea is that they're going to shake him up. Costello suggests just turning him upside down and shaking him so it falls out. But they sort of take him up on that and charlie shakes him physically they rescan him and now so the letters are attached to the chain part of the medallion and the second x-ray the letters spell out help And so they try a third time. This time, Abbott has to help at gunpoint to shake up his buddy. And they finally get an x-ray of the medallion. Looks like the medallion from from Raiders of the Lost Ark, honestly.
1: Yes. And I actually thought that was going to be a plot point. They needed both sides of this medallion and that they miscalculated the dig. I thought that that was going to happen in this dang movie. What did you think about how they were whipping around uh, Lou Costello like a jump rope and then they toss him through the ceiling and then he falls down and there's like that seesaw effect and then Bud Abbott gets his head caught in the ceiling and there's like that whole thing going on for no reason.
0: It's unnecessary, but not the most egregious gag in the movie. I shouldn't say egregious is the wrong word. It's it's superfluous, but not the worst gag in the movie, I should say.
1: I'd like it more, I think, because it's physical comedy and like stunt work and stuff like that. And it's not more wordplay or any of that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's just not necessary, I think, is, is ultimately where I fall on that. It is fun stunt work. It's another unnecessary gag in a movie where the gags already feel too long.
1: I love how they work x-rays into this because I feel like this is the age of x-rays. You get like the man with x-ray eyes and like x-rays are probably turning people into giants in movies at the drive-in around this time. There's a great sequence in one of the seasons of HBO's The Nick, the Knickerbocker Hospital in New York City at the turn of the century. And a guy comes in and he's like, why, this is the x-ray machine. Anybody want to try it? My kids and I have been playing with it all night.
0: So at the end of this scene, once they have the x-ray of the medallion, Simu makes his presence known to Madame Rontru. But he introduces himself as a scientist. He's like an archaeologist and a scholar and is trying to study Egyptology. He's pretty vague.
1: He says he can read hieroglyphics, so that's good enough for her. She's like, we'll keep him around to translate this stuff and then we'll knock him off.
0: Right. Her only intention is to use him to get to the tomb and then cast him aside at the end of that. But he's counting on that, which she doesn't realize.
1: I thought it was funny that he's like, oh, yes, I can decipher this and give you directions and all that kind of stuff. And we'll come to find out like it's his temple that she's trying to find. I don't think that was, a again, a movie joke, but like that was funny to me. Sure.
0: This is a little bit like a noir, right? Like we got two characters who are after the same thing using a little bit of subterfuge to get there. And
1: I'm wondering what's bothering me most about this movie. And unfortunately, it is like the comedy. Like I do like the rest of the stuff like kind of going on here. You know, like I do feel like it would fit another type of mummy movie if we just didn't have Bud and Lou. You know, I want to watch a movie with them. It just doesn't feel like they're fitting in, for whatever reason.
0: Yeah, you know, you've got a point. I hadn't really thought about it outside of being an Abbott and Costello comedy, but if you do take them out of the story and kind of, you know, look at the bare bones of this thing, it's not a bad narrative. And I feel like a modern mummy movie could take notes and kind of use this same framework. I could see this easily being the loose uh, inspiration for a modern mummy movie. That'd be really cool
1: and i think i start liking it more as it's starting to kind of get to the end because we're really going to start dealing with a lot of the iconography of mummy movies like the pyramids and the egypt and the sand we're going to be in the desert finally like all that kind of stuff's about to come up
0: right so now the entire group has reached the point at which princess ara's tomb is wherever it is out in the desert someplace yeah it's
1: a big old evil team up Right? Between Simu and Rontru, and they've got Abbott and Costello in tow.
0: While nobody is looking, Simu sneaks through like a a secret wall and kind of alerts his cultists, right? That these infidels are here.
1: I love that too, where he's like, hey, everybody, I'm back. We're here. We're doing this, you know? And they're like, Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Like, everybody's pumped because it's going according to plan.
0: It's just so funny to me that this is Mel Cooley telling everybody. I can't unsee it now. Abbott and Costello are setting up the tents. Costello accidentally ends up on the other side of this secret wall.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of business here in the hallway, the tunnels, maybe? The tunnels of the temple?
0: He gets caught up in, like, the catacombs. There's a bat, there's a giant iguana.
1: Oh my god, that bat. That bat from like four movies ago the huge iguana so like totally because we're in you know the age of godzilla now right like a godzilla is like a year old or, or the giant monster zone or it, it felt very ray Harryhausen even kind of stuff
0: like everything else makes sense to me right the bat The skeleton hanging in that crypt. That all makes sense to me, but the giant lizard, I couldn't figure it out. You know, like, that's clearly indicative of some kind of supernatural element that
1: hasn't really been addressed up to this point. You would think so. Like, I would think so that it, like, has something to do with the magic of the temple. But, like, where my mind really is going is, like, no, Godzilla came out a year ago. We have movies about giant tarantulas in the theater now. Like, it's about big monsters. And, like, the movie just had to sneak in, like, an atomic monster or something like that is the way I feel about
0: it. What I'm saying is I don't think it really makes sense in this
1: movie. Oh, it, it makes no sense.
0: I'm sure from a production standpoint, you're probably right. I think that was, that must've been the thinking, like, let's make it scary. Let's throw like a giant iguana in there.
1: It also feels like that scene that played so well in, in the Doctor jekyll mr hyde one is like when he falls into the house of horrors right and there's like all of the exhibits like this feels like that moment and i love those moments when that happens to him and so him running around the catacombs was fun for me because it's like okay like he's just getting the shit scared out of him left and right and it's like all these different exhibits and this and that and so i kind of got a chuckle out of the giant lizard i'm by no means saying that it's appropriate <laughs> Anything like that
0: once costello gets out of the crypts there he ends up in like the throne room of this temple where we the audience know that clarus is alive inside his sarcophagus yes and so lou like uh stumbles into this room clarus gets out and is sort of like like sneaks behind costello like lurks behind him
1: yeah he does the lurk Yep. Okay, so we got to talk real quick about mummies and this one. He doesn't move at all like a mummy. Like, he gets right up and out of that sarcophagus like a regular guy. He's kind of walking like a normal man. Like, I was really bummed about the movement of the mummy the suit. What is going on with the mummy suit? Like, we're going to get three mummies in this movie. I think three's a crowd instead of a charm this time. But like, I feel like Bud Abbott's mummy costume is the best. And this is supposed to be like the real one. The head is cool. The mouth movement and all that is all right. I don't know how I feel about this one piece mummy suit.
0: It's very clear that they wanted to save time and money.
1: Dan, time is mummy stop you're fired
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) i resign instead of taking the time to really put together a mummy suit they clearly like created this like one piece suit he could just climb into slide on like a onesie the makeup on his face had a little bit of effort yeah
1: i like it yeah very good decay
0: Yeah, I thought it was was okay. But yeah, this is not Bud Westmore's best work. And as we know from our Creature from the Black Lagoon episode, it's possible, even probable, that he had nothing to do with the creation of this. But of course, his name gets put on the credits.
1: And it's not to say that, like, I don't think that this could work. It's just, I don't know that they had the production value that they needed. Because again, like, the way this is shot, like, sure, there's some great sets and lots of extras and stuff. But like, when we get into the tombs and things, like, it's not you know, lit impressive to the point where you can start hiding things that you need to if you wanted and making stuff look cooler than it is. When the mummy stands up, it's in like this really bright lit throne room as opposed to one just with like, Candlelight, where you could vaguely see, you know, stuff from the shadows, which would have been, you know, maybe cooler and better, and could have sold the suit more. But as it is, we have to look at all of it. But I—that's to say, like—I feel like there's a way the suit could have worked. I just don't feel like they had the ingenuity to pull it off. I
0: don't know. George Robinson shot this, and and we like George Robinson. He tends to be one of the better cinematographers that we've seen. I mean, I think really anytime we've talked about cinematographers on this show outside of Dracula, he did a great job shooting these movies. And for whatever reason, this just, it doesn't look great. And it's probably not his fault. You know, it's giving him the benefit of the doubt. I think that there's only so much he could do about this suit. This whole movie is pretty much shot in broad daylight. I'm going to place the blame on the costume department, the makeup
1: department. Yeah. And I'm just going to say, like, they just shuffled this movie out the door. Right. So it's like we're using what we got. So, like, I'm not trying to point fingers either. I'm just saying it's unfortunate. You know, I just I wish there was a little more care taken.
0: Totally. The gags might be uh, a little bit stale and, and too long, but they at least for me they're mostly funny or at least i can find the humor in them that suit has no excuse like it might be the worst thing about this movie to me every time i look at it i just i can't believe that that's what they put up on the screen everything else makes sense even if it's ill advised the mummy suit just i can't
1: that has to be said
0: so while costello is running around in these catacombs we learn that simu's plan is they're going to celebrate the resurrection of clarus and the sacrifice of these infidels is going to be like the grand finale I
1: I love that everyone's plan is to like use the other people and then just kill them.
0: Which, okay, we're not there yet, but considering how this movie ends, totally, that's very confusing.
1: I know. Let's just say it. Everyone is out to kill each other and then they all open a nightclub together. How are we going to get there from here where there's literally like 15 minutes left to talk about this movie?
0: Costello is trying to convince Abbott that there's a trap door, right? Which he eventually does. Usually it should take longer than that, but in this case they kind of get right to it.
1: And then bud abbott's like let's capture the mummy alive like
0: what are you thinking
1: (laughs) he's like it's alive it's alive he's like good good we'll capture it alive we'll be millionaires i guess
0: yeah, because he says a live mummy is worth more than a dead mummy. The plan is to like just chill out and sit in this throne room when the mummy sneaks up behind Costello, Abbott is gonna whistle. But he can't really whistle. And also Costello is terrified. So he manages to switch places, which backfires on him anyway. You know, it's classic Abbott and Costello, like kind of a predictable gag here.
1: I liked it though because it was quick. You know, the the whole idea that Bud can't whistle and Lou like is amazing at it, I thought was hilarious. Where he's like Because Bud's arrogance You know he's like I'll whistle I'll whistle And then Lou's like Oh you mean like this And it's like amazing I don't know if I Necessarily liked But I thought it was Funny When the mummy Grabs Lou Costello And like he coughs up The medallion As if like he hadn't Chewed it up into bits uh, a few scenes ago or anything like he just coughs the entire thing up full yeah it really
0: solves that problem of like how are we going to get the medallion back
1: well they're not going to have it come out the other side in a, in a <laughs> no. like this no. Th- no not at all yeah
0: they discover that Simu wasn't actually an archaeology student or anything like that he's actually the leader of this temple of Clarus and so the first move is to go back to Madame Rontru who they still trust for some reason or maybe it's a, an elaborate play to get the two villains at each other so that Abbott and Costello can escape. Ron True decides immediately she's going to have Abbott and Costello just start digging a grave. We don't really know what for yet. I don't think it's totally clear what her plan is. But now that she knows that Simu is not who he says he is, she's going to do whatever it takes to get this mummy and the treasure and get back to the United States.
1: They're presumably digging either his grave or their own. Pretty badass where she's like, go dig some holes over there, thinking to herself, they might be for you.
0: This This is the gag that really feels like a who's on first routine.
1: Oh, right. Take your pick. Take your
0: pick. And he takes the shovel and...
1: And the shovel's what I picked. And he's like, but the pick's the pick. Well, you'll pick the pick. I picked the shovel.
0: It's nowhere near as clever as who's on first. And honestly, I'm confused halfway through it. And I'm just trusting that they're correct on the uh, technical side of it by the end of this.
1: Yeah. And I'm just like, why are we doing this now? So they start
0: digging the hole. Costello falls through a trap door. And then Abbott's not far behind him. Ron True, she confronts Simu. She's got her revolver in hand. He basically tells her that with all of his followers, like they don't stand any chance whatsoever of succeeding.
1: No, but she's going to hold him hostage anyway and be like, well, that's okay. You know, if they don't do what I say, I'll just shoot you. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the boys get kind of trapped in a room for a while. And there's another dance sequence. The cult is kind of like, hey, man, like, where's our leader? Something's up. He's missing. We should go find him. Right.
0: But not before they get done this dance scene which lasts a little longer than it should. But yes, Eben notices that Simu hasn't returned. And so now they all disperse and go look for him.
1: And then Madame like grand plan here is to dress one of her henchmen up like a mummy, take the real mummy and bury it and pretend to be the mummy. And somehow they'll get the medallion. That's where they're at right now, right? It's a mummy swap.
0: Yes. Simu is tied up. He's gagged and, and tied up and he's he's not going anywhere yeah
1: and fake mummy charlie and Joseph they go in and like clarice starts to like rise and they just like knock him on the back of the head with like a bat or something and just knock him out i'm like you can't just knock out the mummy like he's gonna get shot several times later and keep coming Like you're gonna just knock him out
0: so now we've got charlie dressed as a mummy, Joseph takes Clarus and they bury him in the hole. So Charlie is now in the sarcophagus and they knock Clarus out and bury him in the hole. And then Bud Abbott's plan, his plan now to preserve his own life is to, as he puts it, get in good with Simu. If he can get on Simu's good side, he might be able to save his own skin.
1: Because he's a weasel.
0: I think his plan is to steal Claris, bury him to keep him safe. And then he dresses up as a mummy himself to get into the sarcophagus to thwart Rontru.
1: So the same plan.
0: Basically. That's how I understood it. Yeah. But ultimately what happens is you have three mummies now running around this tomb. You've got Clarus, Charlie, and Bud Abbott.
1: Too many mummies, Dan. Too many mummies. And I, I have no one to blame but myself, because like, I am <laughs> the one who keeps asking for more monsters, you know, like, give me... Four Jekyll and Hydes. Give me six Draculas. You know, I need three Wolfmen. Like Mike, you you know, you don't know what you're saying. You have three mummies here, and you they don't know what to do with them. Like they it don't yeah. It gets to a point where it's almost that shot of the Spider Man meme where they're just pointing at each other in a circle.
0: Yeah, it it really does. In fact, that should be our next t-shirt. That'd be great. That's really the issue, is that like, there's not a whole lot to do, and you got three mummies, and it feels too much.
1: Yeah, they flew too close to the sun. They barely knew what to do with one mummy.
0: Maybe if we had had a mummy through most of this movie, it would have felt differently. There you go. We get like no mummy for most of this movie, and then we get three mummies.
1: And very little involved with there being three mummies. The routine runs very short compared to the other routines that we've sat through. You would think this would be the long one, but Three Mummies, if we're going by the track names, Three Mummies is the shortest track on the list. Yeah.
0: They kind of save... Simu. They at least get him up out of the dirt. They sit him down and he falls through a trap door. Now we have Charlie and Clarus buried in the sand, although Abbott and Costello think there's still just one mummy in there. There's a whole gag where like one comes up out of the dirt. They whack him with the shovel.
1: Yeah, the whack a mole
0: And then the other one comes back up and they whack him with the shovel. So now Costello has Abbott by the hand and they go back into the tomb, but they are not in time. Ron true and Joseph find the sarcophagus and it's empty. And so now they don't know where Clarus is. They don't know where the medallion is. And their plan is to blow up that throne room, right? She just happens to have this giant roll of dynamite.
1: Because her whole thing was she just wanted the treasure. All of this other stuff can go to hell.
0: She knows that they're in the right spot. If Maybe if she can blow everything up, she can find what she's looking for. We've got our mummies like running around. The, the cultists, Abbott and Costello, our three mummies, running around in these like catacombs. A switch happens. I think Abbott takes off in a different direction. The real mummy is right behind Costello. He grabs his hand. So there's that switcheroo. And then Abbott comes back, grabs the mummy's hand, or Clarice's hand. This scene plays out just about as well as you can imagine
1: it does. It's not very complicated.
0: And so they all descend upon this throne room.
1: There is a struggle. There's that one bit where, what was it, where she was like, everybody stop, like, hands up. Did she say something like, will the real mummy, like, please stand up or some shit? Like, there's some kind of Simon Says business going on, and, and the real mummy won't stop advancing, right? That's when she, like, unloads into Claris and, like, starts shooting
0: it. She finds herself face-to-face with all three, She says, which one of you is Charlie? Step forward, raise your hand. And they all step forward and raise their hands. So she shoots the ground, kind of like in an old Western, you know, like dance. Charlie and Abbott, take off and the only one still coming forward is is clarus she unloads all of her rounds into him he keeps coming she whacks him with her torch
1: that was crazy she's hitting the stunt guy with a lit torch like a real one very dangerous
0: eddie parker was a pro i'm sure he was in a flame retardant suit i would hope but in the in their struggle she throws the dynamite which is now lit right? The, the really long wick is now lit by that torch that gets knocked out of her hand. Everybody now at the end of this scene kind of runs into this room. They see Clarus with the dynamite. He throws it at them. Some confusion there. They throw it back to Clarus and the dynamite explodes, destroys that entire throne room. Eventually does reveal princess ara's tomb and treasure simu's response to that is like you know well like here it is what are we gonna do this whole thing's been revealed and destroyed and so on
1: his thing is like no one's gonna remember the legend of claris and like everything that i've lived for is over and you know what's it all about you know what's the point if no one's gonna remember what happened right something like that was going on
0: yeah so bud abbott's genius plan he's like i have this great plan don't worry and it it fades into this scene where the tomb has been turned into cafe clarus
1: what is that about
0: it is like a casablanca style nightclub everyone's in tuxedos you know there's dancing nice dinner tables
1: there's a five mummy band A
0: five mummy band yep
1: wild stuff.
0: There's a final sequence with Abbott and Costello. But Abbott's, of course, in a tux with tails. Costello shows up in his casual, like his khakis. What he's got is a tuxedo that is like a onesie.
1: Yeah, he's like, where's your tux? He's like, oh, it's right here. And he steps into it and he zips it up and it's like the bow ties, the zipper, and it's a ta-da! I'm in a tuxedo.
0: Dumb. And then we get our last snake charmer gag, because there haven't been enough.
1: We end on a double.
0: That's true. We do end on a double. So Abbott plays the pipe first and a snake comes out and then a second snake comes out and then those snakes come further out to reveal that it's a woman wearing fancy snake gloves. Uh, So Lou Costello takes the flute and does the same thing at this other giant pot. And of course, out comes a snake, a giant snake scares him and he runs off in fear and through a window.
1: Through a giant plate glass mirror that is like providing like a wall to the nightclub, I guess. And he just runs right through it to end the movie. I was like, wow, that is one of the best ways to end a movie I've ever seen. Just have your main character run through a giant mirror at the end. Yep.
0: Yeah. So that is Ab and Costello meet the mummy. I feel like we were a little hard on it, but we're at the end and we've seen a handful of these already. We've seen plenty of mummy movies. Yeah. And yeah, definitely feels like Universal's coming to the end of this era of monsters. You know, we got one more after this. If I didn't know that this was Abbott and Costello's last movie, I might suspect it was, just considering how uninventive it is through most of it.
1: It's too bad they weren't able to go out with a bang or anything like that, you know, and that it just sort of had to be something so underwhelming i was hoping to be like oh sweet the boys are back and instead i was just kind of like oh man like more of this it's just i'm more disappointed in myself for not being up for it you know what i'm saying like i feel like if i was just more down for this now but i'm just too distracted by those Creature from the Black Lagoon movies the last two months, and it's just, I'm in a whole other zone. I feel like if we had done this after doing all the other ones, I would feel different about it. It falls in an unfortunate place in our timeline.
0: Yeah, I mean, that could definitely be a big part of it. So it's been a while since I last saw The Creature Walks Among Us, which is our next and final movie for this era. Considering what this movie was, I am now concerned for the quality of The Creature Walks Among Us. It's been a while. I think I've only ever seen it once. It was several years years ago uh, when I watched like all three of them. And I don't remember much about it. So I'm going to go into it with high hopes because I love the Gill Man. Same. I really hope that this is not a sign of things to come. It's very possible that we're going to feel similarly. I hope not. Do you have anything else you want to add before we go?
1: I just want to reiterate how amazing that opening dance sequence was. If you can, when I can, I'm going to go try and seek that out on YouTube. And if it's not on YouTube, I'm glad I own this movie so that I could go back and watch that sequence anytime I want maybe it's just this movie was geared toward more of a younger crowd this time around possibly if you haven't seen any of the prior Elvis and Costello stuff like I could see this playing a lot better, right? But I feel like it's just if you're familiar with their material at this point, they ain't got much other material. Like That's all it really comes down to. I think we've seen all of their stuff, or all of the best stuff that they have to offer within the confines of monster movies. You're Like, you know, I'm sure when they go to Mars, or they go to the Yukon, or they do other things, like we're going to get more variation, like they're going to do different bits. But I feel like they've been coming back to the same ones, and just seeing how they play against different monsters. Unfortunately, The mummy wasn't even really here so much for them to get a great grip on it. I wish I liked it more.
0: I think I fall in the same place as you. It's just because I I really like Abbott and Costello so much that it sucks when I see one of their movies and I just don't love it. By this point in their career, I'm giving them more credit than they probably deserve because it's Abbott and Costello. And I just want to like it. Definitely not one of their better movies, that's for sure. I have the box set of all of their Universal movies, so I plan to fill in those blind spots. I've only ever seen a handful of Abbott and Costello movies, so there's still a lot of them that I haven't seen. So I'm looking forward to that. I suspect this is probably not their worst. It has a 1 in 28 shot of being their worst universal movie. So I'm hoping that, you know, for their sake, that the Mummy movie was not the worst thing that they did. So I think it's time for us to shamble back into our tomb. But before we do that, we've got some mail.
1: Oh, okay.
0: We have an email from listener Matthew Thompson. Matthew says... Hello, hello, hello. First off, I'd like to say that I have loved listening to your podcast. The universal classic monster movies have always been some of my favorite films of all time, and I feel there isn't a large online fandom to enjoy. Listening to your podcast has helped fill that void. On top of that, I work in film and frequently have very long road trips to get to a set, and you have kept me awake on the road many times, so thanks for that. While I'm sure at this point you are already making decisions on what to do once you finish your list, I still feel the need to list a few universal horror movies that I usually associate with the monster series below. Borderline universal monsters if you will mainly i want to include this list in case you're considering any of these films already i want to give you that final push Awesome. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923. So we talked about doing The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, it was Um, almost
1: our first episode.
0: Yes. Like we were trying to figure out where to start. We agreed that it may have been the start of Universal's real big push into horror, but The Hunchback is not typically thought of as a classic monster. And so, I mean, that didn't stop us from including Jekyll and Hyde. So I think we definitely need to go back and, and cover The Hunchback of Notre Dame, considering Lon Chaney, Sr.
1: I also think that considering along the way on this journey, we've come into some awesome hunchbacks. Okay. Yep. Bella. All yep. right. But also the female hunchback. Incredible stuff. So, like, I would like to go back to the start of the hunchback as well.
0: Yes. Other suggestions are The Cat and the Canary, 1927, uh, The Man Who Laughs, 1928. Spanish version of Dracula, which we did talk about the Spanish version of Dracula in our Dracula episode, our second episode. I don't know that there's enough there to warrant a full episode. What do you think, Mike?
1: I'm always up to do it. We referred to it. I watched it when we talked about Dracula because I wasn't sure if we were going to do a full episode or not. But look, if we're looking for episodes to do, I'm up for it. I mean, put it on the list, and. We've got other things on that list that really don't deserve to be watched and reviewed that I want to do. This, at least, you know, has an actual place.
0: Murders in the Rue Morgue, 1932. The Old Dark House, 1932. Islands of Lost Souls. The Black Cat, 34. Monster on the Campus. The Leech Woman.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, some good ones.
0: Or maybe even an episode of the unofficial Dracula sequel, The Return of the Vampire from 1943.
1: Oh, certainly. I'd be up for any of that.
0: Nonetheless, can't wait to hear what happens next. Thanks for indulging me, Matthew the Ghoul Man Thompson.
1: Oh, sweet. Thank you so much for listening super appreciate it.
0: Matthew, I love that you're listening to this show while you're on long road trips. Uh, One of the concerns that I had was that our episodes are long, you know, like over two hours sometimes, and it's a commitment. So I'm I'm glad that people are are making the time to listen and, and enjoying the show. It's not like we're doing hour long episodes that are easy and breezy, although that might be our future, you know, as we get into more modern movies, I don't know that I'll be able to delve as deep into the history, um, but you know, I'm definitely going to do my best, but I always appreciate that people are listening. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Here, here. All right, well, we will be back on Friday, May 26th to discuss 1956's The Creature Walks Among Us. So be sure to join us as we bid farewell to the Gill Man and officially close out the original run of Universal's classic monster movies. Just to address any other episodes, like anything that Matthew mentioned in his email, like these uh, other old school Universal horrors, we definitely have talked about about doing like maybe some bonus episodes and like everything that came in between the monster movies. We definitely want to do that at some point in the future. I'm not sure when, but in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at the Monsters That Made Us, and you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at The underscore Mikester, and you can hear all the other shows I'm on at CageClub.me.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at Patreon.com slash TheMonstersThatMadeUs. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. That helps people discover of the show. And also we just like hearing what you guys have to say on iTunes. So please leave us a review or leave us comments on our social media. Uh, we love hearing from you. We can't forget about our t-shirts on Tee Public. You can find a link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody.